Welcome to episode one of the Wine Heretics podcast. I'm your host, Jack-Jack, and today we have a vast array of topics to discuss, including Jewish winemaking, a Roman politician, and, well, mushrooms. So, without further ado, this is the Wine Heretics podcast. So I was working on a um, recreation of an ancient Roman wine recipe. Um, I was doing lots of research on basically what made this wine different from wine that you can find in the store today. Um, and I came across your article, and you were kind of the only person who had written about um, egg-shaped fermenters in a digestible format. <laughs> and so I, uh, I reached out to you and got some more insight on that. Clem and I met, well, through LinkedIn of all places. Originally, he had contacted me a couple of years ago about concrete egg fermenters. At the time, I had just published an article in Wine Folly regarding this particular topic. Since then, Clem and I have kept in contact and occasionally have gotten together to try some of our home-brewed wine. But I figured it would be a good opportunity to bring him on the podcast and hear more about his thesis and what he did in the project. So I used Cato the Elder's recipe. It's one of the most complete and... Uh, it's, it's the most complete recipe that makes sense. Um, and that's not half lost to the ravages of time. Um, Cato the Elder was a statesman kind of elite who lived in uh, around 150 AD in Rome. But he was known for being more or less a grumpy sort of old guy who uh, hated politics, even though he was a politician and um, just wanted to live in his villa in the countryside. Moving forward... Clem and I dove into the more biochemical aspects of Cato the Elder's wine and what made his wine so different from your modern-day wine that you find at the grocery store. Wine is a living organic product, as you know, I'm sure you know. Um, the, you want the yeast in your uh, grape must to be happy, um, and it lives in this environment that um, is basically, you know, acidic, anoxic, um, relatively cool yeah. and dark. They like dark. Um, but the Roman wine was um, more oxidized. It was less acidic. Um, there were different compounds in it that um, sort of made the yeast, or put the yeast in this very different environment from today's must. You know, even though it's the same in name, what made this wine so different from, uh, from today's? The techniques, I'd say, are the most similar um, of the different aspects I was looking at. Oh, really? Yeah. So you tried to replicate it. And the grapes. And the grapes. Yeah. So how did that all, like, where did you get the grapes? I mean, how did that all kind of go down? Yeah, so I stumbled upon a paper um, that used uh, DNA analysis on ancient grape seeds from some pot that they found in some guy's field in France. Um, and they, um, they sequenced the, the grape genome and found that basically grapes today are exactly the same as grapes from a thousand years ago. So I felt pretty safe buying modern grapes for this project. <laughs> um, you know, if it works, don't fix it. So I, I got modern grapes. Um, Cato the Elder's technique was very similar to today's. Um, you know, you, you pitch your must, um, 
you draw off the uh, grape skins and seeds um, and then let it finish up and then you know bottle it when it's ready yeah basically very simple um, Cato put in um, and as did basically the Greeks uh, the Egyptians the Carthaginians and any other Romans from the time the Greek wine was the gold standard so the Roman oh, really? wine yeah um, the Greeks were known for their for their wine and the Romans, Cato being moderately to severely xenophobic, um, <laughs> felt surprisingly comfortable doing a Greek recipe. So the, the recipe um, includes marble dust, which is a uh, strong base. It basically turns your wine must into a close to neutral um, in terms of acidity solution. And so that, that's why you're, the wine isn't as acidic as the modern. That's why it isn't as acidic, and I think that that's one of the strongest additives. And then oh, they, really? yeah, and they would also put in salt and um, pine resin. Yep, you heard him right, salt and pine resin. And he proceeds to tell me something a little bit more shocking, you might say. So here's why I didn't let um, anyone else taste the Roman wine that I made, um, because I did end up making the wine, but basically a uh, sugar solution that's not acidic is a playground for any number of bad bacteria that can kill you. Oh. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, don't throw sugar and water together and uh, hope that it goes well. Salt may or may not have made it safe from those bacteria oh, by making it inhospitable in another way, a, okay. a different way than wine is today. Okay. That's, that's why you that's why I didn't let anyone taste it. I didn't but want to be responsible it. for any deaths on campus. <laughs> well, I spat it out after I tasted it. Okay, okay. Yeah. So you, you were willing to uh, take the risk of just tasting it. And so, so how did it taste? Did bad. You? Oh, okay. Yeah, it was, it was really bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was hoping it was actually going to be like good, like something phenomenal. Well, but... as, as is, um, it's really bad. But the Romans and the Greeks and everyone else who drank it at that time period... Um, the Jews as well, actually, you can see um, there's ancient Jewish um, texts on their wine drinking um, habits, and it also talks about um, diluting the wine. So Romans, okay. Greeks, yeah. uh, anyone around that time was diluting the wine. Um, the original thought was they would start the party with um, full strength wine and then dilute it as the crater. The crater is the um, container that the wine was in, um, kind of like a big punch bowl. Okay. Yeah. Um, was it dug into the ground, kind of? Or? No, it was a, a pretty fantastical looking um, bowl. I'll pull up a picture. As the party went on, people would get more and more rowdy. Um, oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. It's like a goblet yeah. for those listening. A uh, big open mouthed uh, sort of thing. Uh, they would have a ladle in it and serve people. Um, but as the party got more and more rowdy, they'd want people to kind of not get Simmer too down. smashed yeah um that was the original thought now the thought might be um that it tasted really bad undiluted um because it did um <laughs> <laughs> but that was mainly because of the salt content um the amount of salt that Cato calls for in his recipe um makes it pretty much unpalatable at full strength and then at half strength it's I'd say kind of similar in terms of electrolytes to Gatorade. The Romans and Greeks treated salt a lot differently from uh, people today. Um, and in what way, like, did they? They, well, the word salary comes from uh, 
the Latin word for salt because they would pay soldiers in salt. It was a very valuable uh, kind of sign of wealth, basically. Um, if your wine was salty, it tasted fancier. Cato called for powdered pine resin in his wine, um, which mimicked the flavor of wine that had sat in a pine resin lined container for a very long time. So just like um, bad whiskey uses oak chips to mimic a longer time in a barrel, um, powdered pine resin dissolved in the wine gave it that aged punch. I think one of the most memorable aspects of this conversation was when I proceeded to ask Clem where he had acquired many of these ingredients. Obviously salt is easy to come by, but where did he get the marble dust? It's not exactly like you can go to the store and just buy food-grade marble dust. This is for sure Home Winemaking 101. The, the marble dust that I put in, um, I hand-smashed from a tile, and I don't know, <laughs> you know what other compounds they'd put in that tile to make it a bit more resistant to weathering. So who knows if I got, like, <laughs> bleach or something. Something in there, yeah. Which is another base, so it'd be okay. Okay. You just yeah. like you went to Home Depot or Lowe's and I had an old um, tile sample from uh, my mom's bathroom renovation. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. This is this is home wine making. Uh, I was really flying by the seat of my pants with this project. Yeah, but you did such a thorough job. I felt like after like reading. I mean, what it, was I gonna do? Was I gonna look up on Amazon? organic marble <laughs> tile. <laughs> it's true. That's true. You, you Nobody's using it for food these days. Yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I can remember the last time I saw marble on the ingredients. Food, the food safe marble. Yeah. Yeah. Food safe marble. So you did that. Um, they do have food safe uh, pine resin though for uh, wrapping paper. Oh, really? Yeah. You, you uh, heat it up and liquefy it and dip your paper in it for wrapping, uh, you know, meat and stuff. I'm assuming you can get it on, like, Amazon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can get everything on Amazon, except for marble dust, apparently. Amazon saved this project because uh, we were all locked down. Oh, really? Oh, the yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, so this was... 20, this is... 2020. 2020. Yeah. And you were finishing this project kind of during the fall of mm-hmm. 2020? hmm Yeah. So you did that. You made the wine thought it was horrible. Uh, it was a great experiment. Bottled a couple bottles. You did? You yeah. did bottle a couple. I don't have one anymore. Um, I gave one as a souvenir to the department, to my uh, advisor for helping me with the project. Um, and the other bottle I had uh, run a tasting with uh, me and my friend. Nice. Yeah. And what did your friend think? Um, he was more of a fan of the less diluted stuff but he couldn't handle the uh full strength either so he was he was team 75 percent i was team 50 percent and you mean uh diluting by water Mm -hmm. okay just new jersey tap that's all i had (laughs) (laughs) new jersey tap water yeah so maybe that's why it was so bad (laughs) it actually wasn't the marble dust the pine or anything the salt it was actually it was the state of new jersey so there you have it he finished Cato the Elder's wine recipe, found out it was disgusting. That way you don't have to try to find out if it is. Clem still dabbles in the brewing arena from time to time, and I must say, he's quite gifted at it. And I'm not just saying that because I'm his friend. And with that being said, Clem and I went on to discuss his other brewing projects, in particular, 
his love for mead. Now my background is wine, so I really don't have any background knowledge. So it was great to discuss this with him and learn a few things. I've been into mead. Um, that's why I think that these projects went so smoothly. Um, I'd been brewing a lot of mead and kind of got a handle on um, how yeast behaves in, uh, in fluid. Princeton was kind enough to um, sponsor me doing a practice run of wine because I had never done grape wine before. Um, I made an okay Zinfandel. Um, it's a little carbonated. A little semi-carbonated. Semi-carbonated. Okay, yeah. um, and then... Where'd uh, you get the fruit at? Same supplier, uh, Wine Grapes Direct. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's your go-to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I liked them so much the first time that I, I went for them for the Roman stuff. Oh, nice. So yeah. you made the Zinfandel, the semi-sparkling baby yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it. it's a natural <laughs> it's pretty good um i only have one bottle left so i'm saving it for a special occasion nice. um i didn't get such good yield out of it um so i ordered the five gallon um bucket which is five gallons of grapes with one and a half gallons or so of headspace mm -hmm. and what i did was i transferred it all to a five gallon um fermenter which i have right here and so i needed oh, okay. to bump it down to four gallons uh, to leave headspace um, and then I put the rest in a little one gallon carboy with a little tiny grape sized um, spout so yeah. I was squeezing whole grapes into this carboy uh, <laughs> there was a lot of spillage oh. I didn't have a funnel um, it was just a mess and so the second time uh, with the newer grapes I just uh, started fermentation in the uh, in the bucket that they sent the grapes in and managed to keep everything to get together and just did it that way yeah that seems like a lot easier it was a lot more simple <laughs> I guess, you know you just kind of learn as you go right yeah you learn as you go you make stupid mistakes and uh you you realize that the simplest way to do things is probably the right way yeah i, I totally agree <laughs> with you yeah because that's i mean that's what i've been learning uh, which speaks to my sanitization uh techniques yeah so or lack so thereof is they now clem's lack of sanitation, I wouldn't necessarily call lack of sanitation. He does use hot water, boiling water, which will sufficiently kill any potential microbes, um, or at least most of them anyway. Hot water is always a good go-to. A lot of winemakers prefer to use iodine, some of them prefer to use KMET. Every winery has their own preference. Now, as Clem mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, if something works, don't change it. And it's working for him as a home brewer. So, kind of to each his own, really. I'm not saying that you should do this in a commercial winery, as a lot of money is tied up in the wine you're making. But like I said, on a home brewing level, I think that works. I don't know about you, Jack, but um, I trust yeast. <laughs> uh, I'd read some literature that basically said that yeast, um, especially the stuff that you get in packets, puts out uh, toxic compounds that kills anything else that might try to uh, infect your brew. That puts out, I think, proteins that are basically little um, toxins, little, and yeast is a fungus, so a lot of fungi, um, especially the single-celled ones, um, like penicillin, are, um, is penicillin single-celled? Uh, I think it is. It's a great question. We can look it up. We could look it up. Yes. Um, I'll look it up real quick while you, while you go. But basically, uh, single cells um, need to have some kind of effective simulation of an immune system. Um, and uh, so yeast 
puts out toxins to uh, protect itself from predators, um, competitors. Competitors mostly is what we're worried about here with um, fermenting. So suppose um, lactobacillus wants to take up space in my um, carboy with wine in it. Um, the yeast is making an inhospitable environment with these, I forget what they're called, um, but we can just say toxins for now. Yeah. But yeah, penicillin works on the same principle, uh, and that's why we culture it to make um, antibiotics. Okay, that's super interesting. You're teaching me so much. (laughs) (laughs) Now, mind you, I'm I'm not the scientist in any way. I just have worked in wineries, and I'm like, yeah, this is kind of how we do it. Uh, I don't really know the chemistry behind it necessarily, so this is all um, really fascinating. And so you... uh, I've also had good luck not getting infections. It, they do happen. I rinse my bottles with hot water, boiling water, before I um, bottle anything. Okay. Um, because at that point, when I'm bottling, it should be more or less stable. Okay. Um, if I'm dipping uh, something into the uh, into the must as it's fermenting, I'll run it under hot water. But um, other than that, and, you know, obviously wash things with at least just water before I, um, before I ferment. But yeah. I'm not running any hardcore sanitization, um, sanitizing stuff through it. I'm yeah. not rinsing with vodka. Yeah, <laughs> adds a little uh, extra flavor in there. Yeah, and also um, I'm of the opinion that if, uh, if there are microbes persistent enough to cause infection, running star sand through it might not really help mm-hmm. because they'll form spores. The spores will survive any chemical attack. This is kind of a tangent, but um, we we send, you know, every so often we send robots to Mars, and um, there are scientists who are very firm on making sure that the robots have as few microbes as possible on them. In case there's life on Mars, we don't want to infect the red planet with uh, yeah. with our microbes until we get a good read on what's going on. So um, we have some of the best rocket scientists in the country trying to sanitize these robots as much as possible before they get sent into space. And um, I think that the number was a few microbes per square centimeter after autoclaving, you know, running it through the oven and running sanitizing solution all over it. So, you know, if if rocket scientists can't get um, their spacecrafts (laughs) sterile, then what am I doing? It's it's not rocket science. After a few side tangents on microbes and spacecraft and sanitation, we finally really focused in on what Clem is most passionate about. Well, I have a lot, at least in college, I had a lot in common with mead, um, which is basically you have these yeast plunged into this um, saturated environment that's um, effectively toxic to them, um, and they're surviving off of a singular carbo- carbohydrate diet, um, just like I was in college. Uh, so they're not happy. They're not healthy. Um, it's a little tricky, but the reason I got into it was um, you can kind of do anything with mead. You can put hops in mead. You can put fruit in mead. Um, you can stop your mead at 6% alcohol. You can stop it at 12%. You can carbonate it. You can serve it cold or warm. So it's really versatile. It's, it's a versatile medium, unlike beer, which kind of has its limits, or wine, which is very set in its uh, in what you can do yeah. with it. Um, you could argue with the wine thing; it's mostly a social yeah. constraint. 
But yeah, you can do anything with mead, and that's what attracted me to it in the first place, and I think that's what's kept me there. And I think that if the market for uh, for alcohol was a bit more understanding, then um, we'd see a lot more people drinking mead. Yeah, see, that that's the thing, is I, I talk to winemakers and um, other like industry professionals who are kind of into that stuff. Um, yeah. Well... well not really into that well just like into brewing and winemaking and I, then I ask them about mead and a lot of the time they always like I feel like people love it or they just absolutely hate it they're like it's the most disgusting <laughs> thing ever and I've, oh, well, I've, I've tried mead at judgings and, yeah. and that was kind of where I got introduced to it so like supposedly really good mead Yeah. and they serve it to me and I'm like alright I guess let me see what this tastes like. And I, mm-hmm. I kind of liked it because it was different. Uh, yeah. it's, you can't go into it like it's wine, obviously, but it's yeah. its own category. Well, there's there's two kinds of mead. Um, there's the mead you get at Renaissance fairs um, that's supposed to be historically accurate and that's very sweet, syrupy. Um, modern mm-hmm. Polish mead is, uh, is a lot like that. And then there's kind of the modern mead that um, a lot of hip meaderies are making these days, which tends to be off dry to dry and I'm uh, as much as I can be kind of a hardcore dry mead kind of guy yeah yeah um, I don't like the sweet flavors but um, I, I think yeah, that I it I don't either it's... it kind of overpowers the more delicate floral aromas in yeah the, in the honey totally agree with you that with that because uh, I try to I guess the first one I ever tried was completely dry yeah and since I had no background in mead, mm-hmm. I just assumed it was all sweet. Uh, yeah. So I was like, oh, okay. It smells like it's going to be sweet. Yeah, it smells like honey. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, I'm bracing myself for a sugar bomb, kind of like ice wine or late harvest freezing. <laughs> and then I was like, whoa, this is like bone dry. This is weird. Yeah. And then the viscosity of it is also kind of interesting. Yeah. If it's not like diluted, I'm assuming. Is that... Yeah, you get kind of... Um... A little bit of an oily character um, mm-hmm. from the honey. I don't know what's carrying that over. I don't know if it's beeswax uh, in solution or mm-hmm. if that's just the way honey is. Yeah. So there's the the dry stuff and then the sweeter stuff, and then the hop thing. Like, so the only reason I know about people adding hops to mead mm-hmm. is because I went into a liquor store last week and I saw mead and it says with hops and I was like, whoa, yeah, a mead with hops. I'm really curious what that tastes like. And I didn't buy it because uh, I'm on a budget. You know, I'm a broke college <laughs> student. So, but uh, I mean, is it like I know that hops can really be like overbearing. So it doesn't. Is it just kind of add a slight um, fruitiness to the the meat, or what? How does it? It depends if you're buying a hops bomb or not. Um, you know who you're buying from. Uh, here in the Pacific Northwest, we get a lot of overhopped. Uh, alcoholic material yeah um, but it can add a little bit of a, a bitter note which um, I think is kind of missing from your typical basic dry mead mm-hmm. um, you get that that sweetness um, kind of a singular flavor characteristic and sometimes it can lack that um, a little extra something so the meads that I like are uh, oaked and you get that similar kind mm-hmm. of subtle extra little bit of flavor that uh brings a little bit more body to the drink yeah oh that's super interesting so there's like oat 
meads with, uh, I'm assuming that people make it with like oak meads with hops. Do they do all of that or is it? I haven't tried that before, oh, but um, I'm sure you could find it or make it. Yeah, I guess uh, home brewing. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're a home brewing success story. Uh, so you, you've made a mead, you've made a plum wine, um, and then what's that one over there? Oh, this is the plum wine right here. Oh, that's the plum wine. Yeah, you want to try it? Sure. All right. I think this was one of the funniest parts of the podcast, and I really enjoyed this little side tangent we went on. And we did try the the plum wine, and it was delicious, I will say. And I'm not just saying that because I'm his friend. He was really able to hone in on the plummy characteristics, and it was just clean. It didn't have any faults. So for those of you who are listening who are home brewers, you know, you can you can do a lot with this. You can do plums, strawberries. There's all sorts of things you can try. And if you're in need of uh, fruit, Clem has a few... <laughs> few suggestions. This is one of the funniest ways I've ever heard someone acquiring fruit for a brewing project. So I, I turn on my phone one evening and uh, I see on Reddit some guy has posted, uh, I have a bunch of grapes, does anyone want them? I'm, uh, I'm by the airport in Seattle and I'm the second commenter um, who says like, I, I'd like some. And uh, the guy reached out to me and he said the, uh, the first guy, you know, bailed. I guess he didn't want to get airport grapes um, airport grapes, airport grapes uh, because I don't know what the varietal is but I assume Concord something something like that um, and so I, I ran down to grab them and uh, brewed them into a pretty bad uh, Concord grape wine that we're just gonna see what I can do with it <laughs> gotten a few things from Reddit my uh, espresso machine over there um, <laughs> so it's, it's like a and my last espresso machine too I'm on r slash coffee swap it's it's a toxic uh horrible place but um if you cultivate your your own reddit communities uh you can find some pretty pretty great pages we do go on a few side tangents but i felt like i needed to include it because what's a podcast without a little discussion on mushroom hunting got some help from the uh, mushroom hunting community i thought i found a edible culinary mushroom not psychoactive um on my parents' lawn, and I was curious to know if it was really edible, and uh, Reddit told me that it was. Oh. It was a puffball mushroom, uh, if you know what that is. I it's do not. just a little, uh, maybe kind of the size of your thumb, um, basically golf ball-shaped um, mushroom that uh, supposedly tastes like tofu. Um, mine was a bit small. Giant puffballs are known to be pretty great. Mm-hmm. Um, they can get to be the size of your head or bigger. Um, I was too scared to try it because apparently immature death cap mushrooms can also look like these. A cap mushroom is one that you don't want to put in your mouth at all, so. Noted. Uh, that's, that's the other thing is like those mushroom hunter guys, like the, the pigs, they train the mm-hmm. pigs and, and whatnot. Truffle mushrooms. Yeah, I've always like been interested in that, but I've also been at the same time like, The Pacific happens? Northwest is the only other uh, place in the world, I think, other than that region in, I think it's Italy, France, yeah, uh, um, where you can find truffles. Really? Yeah. Wow. So Oregon, Washington, um, maybe a bit of Idaho. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've thought about getting into it. In fact, in my hometown, which is fairly small, uh, it's like 20,000 people, mm-hmm. at the community college at one time, they had a guy who, like, that was his gig. and he Mushroom t- hunting? Yeah, but he, like, 
they had like the whole dog. Oh, cool. Up. And like you could take a class. Yeah. And like do all that. I always thought it was really cool. Uh, but I was just always like, what happens one day if I accidentally <laughs> get the wrong mushroom or whatever? Well, the nice thing is, um, mushroom hunting is for kind of all skill levels. Um, there are your advanced level mushrooms where you need to be very sure that what you're looking at there is uh, safe and not uh, look-alike that can kill you. But um, there are some lower level mushrooms that are totally distinguishable from any other mushroom that, um, you know, there's there's no way to confuse it for anything else and it's yeah. safe to eat. Um, I found one mushroom once... Uh, back in school that was a it was a morel um pull up a picture if you don't know what that is i don't um i've heard the name though. very proud of it it had a little bite taken out of it so i didn't want to eat it but um <laughs> you know some some curious uh, woodland creature probably uh took a little taste um but that was kind of a rush it's like vegetarian fishing um you know you're out in nature <laughs> you don't know if you're gonna get a good haul or not um and you're more there just to... The experience. Yeah, the experience. Um, I'm not a vegetarian myself, so I do prefer fishing. Wine and, uh, and mushroom hunting have fungus in common. Yes, yeast and fungus. We're going back to the yeast subject again, only this time it's going to be a little bit more crazy. That is, yeast can produce spider silk. You've got a, a friend who like messes around with yeast as far as genetically yes. modifying yeast, what so like what's that story there? Because you you knew him from Princeton. Mm -hmm. or how did that work? Yeah. So you see all my lab gear right there. Yeah. I've got uh, some some uh, flasks and uh, I have a uh, an automatic stir and, and heater. Um, that's all from him. He wants me to uh, kind of just experiment with whatever brewing stuff. Um, he's a good friend from Princeton. He lives out in Spokane. Um, he's in law school right now. Um, I think Harvard Law. Really? He's gonna get mad at me if he hears this and he doesn't. And I don't know which uh, which law school it is. <laughs> I don't remember what I had for breakfast, so uh, I, it's, I it's not on him. I, I know. Um, yeah, but uh, so he was working on genetic engineering of yeast, and his um, his senior thesis project. Um, and I can only go so far into detail because it's it's a little bit under wraps right now because yeah, it's a, yeah. kind of a groundbreaking technique, but. Um, are you familiar with CRISPR? I am. So, um, At least on a general level. Yeah, so, you know, for the audience, um, CRISPR is a method of inserting DNA into a cell um, in a way where the cell incorporates the DNA. Um, so he was working on something similar to CRISPR. Um, I also know, I happen to know somebody else, a neighbor from uh, my, when I was back on Mercer Island. Um, he's also working on like a new and improved CRISPR. Um, that seems to be the, the big thing these days. Um, but one of the ways you test it is on um, yeast cells because yeast cells can basically live in any medium. Uh, you can replicate them super easily. You can have them produce any protein. Um, and uh, the, the best way to test your CRISPR or whatever uh, method you're using to insert DNA is um, you make it produce what you want it to produce. Mm -hmm. So uh, he was making it make spider silk. Um, and then you also, in that same gene that you're inserting, make it um, antibiotic resistant. 
or antifungal resistant or something. So if it's E. coli, it's antibiotics. If it's um, yeast, it's antifungals. Um, so he, he would insert this gene and then um, culture a bunch of this yeast and then um, blast it with this antifungal that it's supposed to be resistant to. Yeah. And now at the end, all you have left is the yeast that's resistant and you know that it's also producing spider silk because it is resistant because okay. it's all in the yeah. same gene yeah. yeah 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 and it's the spider silk because um spider silk is notoriously difficult to insert um it's repeating sequences so it might be like atg 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 yeah, yeah. um and crispr it's a protein it, uh and it reads dna it tends to get a little confused with repetition because it's looking for identifiable um places to cut the, okay, the so gene. it's looking for, for markers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if your gene is uh, a repeating sequence, then there might not be markers to um, easily identify and cut. The way around that is you take silk from different spiders, or mm -hmm. the genes for silk from different spiders. Uh, you might have, like, sticky silk and um, structural silk, and you arrange it in a random way so that you get kind of a hodgepodge of silk coming mm -hmm. out, but um, you are still getting silk, and... Um, that's so fascinating. And there are identifying characteristics in that genome. That's... Now, so I remember you mentioning this to me, and so I was like, okay, I wonder if this guy has any, like, YouTube videos. No. And he does not. No, he doesn't. Okay. Um, yeah, from what I understand, what he was working on, um, like, the cool part of it is something yeah. that's already been done. And yeah. then the um, kind of, like more boring but in-depth um you know i'm sure it's very interesting to people who actually do this sort of stuff yeah yeah um but that was the the groundbreaking part so the the method by which he did this but um our idea was maybe uh engineer yeast if the fda wouldn't have a total freak out over it um to brew some kind of interesting wine you know there are glow-in-the-dark beer kits that you can get online um where you're yeast is making alcohol and then as a byproduct it's also making a protein that glows it fluoresces when um, light hits it or maybe under a UV light so um, maybe do something a little bit more functional than that like a vitamin infused um, wine that would be so it's, it's kind of like the world of endless possibilities there it seems like but the FDA yeah. basically clamps down a lot of that they clamp down on it, and I don't have millions of dollars to spend on um, research and development. Yeah. And I don't have, you know, that money to spend on them. Um, or I guess the R&D part is easy, but getting something approved is mm -hmm. tedious and long and expensive. And, um, you know, if it's not worth it, it's not worth it. Yeah. But um, we've done this sort of thing with um, rice in the developing world, mm -hmm. where um, rice is now uh, supplemented with vitamin b12 i think so the rice as it grows it's genetically engineered to also produce this vitamin that these people aren't getting in their diets otherwise some crazy percentage of rice grown in africa and asia uh is this engineered rice i mean it's basically endless possibilities and uh you can really do a lot of good with it yeah that's but that's awesome on the other hand people going to the store and buying bougie genetically engineered wine or meat or beer uh probably aren't vitamin deficient yeah. <laughs> yeah. So wrapping it all up, Clem and I decided to talk about one more thing which had piqued my interest in the previous weeks when I had talked to him about the podcast, which is Jewish 
winemaking or or more specifically kosher winemaking yeah so this topic is a minefield um <laughs> great depending <laughs> on on which i'm jewish by the way for the audience uh i only drink kosher wine um so depending on kind of which jews might hear this yeah. they might disagree with me yeah but yeah. um the the background for kosher wine and what makes wine kosher is a lot different from all other kosher rules mm. because the basic kosher rules relate to um meat and dairy products yeah. um but wine is different because vegetables tend to be kosher no matter what uh in fruits um, but wine was the societal centerpiece of the social centerpiece of these communities yeah. back in, you know, Israel, in Poland, uh, yeah. in Spain. And um, everyone knew the winemaker. So, and, it, you know, wine was also sacramental. So yeah. the, the social and the religious aspects of wine made it this very important um, thing in, in, in communities back then. And now we're, we're alienated from this idea um we go to the store we buy a bottle of wine we don't really know where it came from we don't know who made it we're not shaking hands with the guy that yeah. that made this wine um to to quote my my rabbi from yeshiva um that i went to before college uh, we're not going to marry his daughter uh <laughs> but basically um that rule also related to bread and cheese, bread and cheese being the, the food staples. Yeah. Um, the rule for bread, depending on who you ask, of course, it's it changes yeah. from person yeah, to person. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, that rule for bread kind of went away. The rule for cheese is, you know, kind of half there. Yeah. And then for wine, it's very strict that um, only Jews can make the wine. Really? Yeah. So uh, the wine has to have been basically from... The, from pitching the yeast to uh, bottling, um, only handled by Jewish people. And it's really? this, yeah, kind of like antiquated vestige that, um, you know, if you've seen Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. Uh, Tradition. Tradition. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it's it's one of these things that's kind of stuck around. And, yeah. um, you know, rules can always change. Uh, again, depending on who you ask, Judaism isn't uh, inflexible, but... Um, as it stands, that's the way it is. That's so fascinating. I had no idea. Yeah. That's... Oh, man. I just learned a whole bunch. <laughs> <laughs> so so it doesn't just apply to wine, then. It, like you were mentioning, it's like cheese. And... So, yeah, cheese is kind of a similar rule. Um, you could say it's a bit more lax, um, yeah. that it just has to be overseen by uh, a Jewish person, Um the rule for bread has gone away, um, but yeah, beer beer is fine, um, meat is fine, uh, pretty much any distilled spirit except for grape, grape-based spirits are fine. Really? Yep. Uh, why, it's why is that? Because um, thankfully the rule uh, has only applied to uh, to grapes okay. and grape grape-based, you know, booze. So brandy, vermouth wine um all need to be certified kosher but you know suppose you want to grab a beer at a bar um if you keep kosher it's pretty much no problem no problem that okay that's so depending on who you ask depending on who you, <laughs> <laughs> i guess that applies to any realm of i being life. a modern orthodox jew <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so it's 
Yeah, uh, I, uh, I get you there. Uh, yeah. Now, have you ever gone to Israel and tried um, mm-hmm. wine there? Like, so for reference point, I've only tried one wine from Israel, uh, and it was it was from Galilee. Um, oh yeah. And it was so horrible. Yeah. Um, but it smelled great. So they like to think that they're doing French style. Do they? Okay, yeah. it's because it was definitely not French. In fact, yeah. when I was presented the wine, it was blind, mm-hmm. and I thought it was a tawny port because it was uh. oxidized, <laughs> and it had this funky um, nuttiness to it, which is typical of, of mm-hmm. tawny ports and port-style wines. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, oh, this is going to be really interesting. And so I, but I had no idea it was from Galilee, so. and I tried it, and it stained my teeth for like a month and a half, I went to the dentist. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> they put, I think they put in, um, what is it called? It's like purple something. It's a thing you can, it's a dye you can put in to color your wine. So I think that's why it stained my teeth. But oh man, uh, but yeah, that's my only experience with it. But so there's there's uh, two kinds of kosher wine, um, broadly speaking. One is they call it mevushal, um, and that's where they flash boil the wine, um, typically I think under a vacuum, so it boils at a lower temperature. Um, and the idea there is, it's really, uh, I, I shouldn't criticize, um, but basically the idea is that it, if you boil the wine, it ruins the flavor. Mm-hmm. And if you ruin the flavor, then it can't be used for sacrament. So <laughs> it's just that okay. way it couldn't have possibly been used for idol worship because yeah. these rules come from when, you know, people were like sacrificing little kids to the goat God. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. 2000 years ago. Um, so it can't have possibly been used for sacrament if it is ruined because yeah. typically the best of your harvest went to the gods. Some people do that um, and some people only drink that wine. Um, and then there's also wine that's only been handled by Jews um, and you know if you trust it you trust it. You may have had boiled wine. That's what that sounds like. <laughs> yeah. um, I've had some good wines um, when I was in Israel, I was 18 years old, and um, the program that I was with um, was, I wouldn't say they were anti-drinking, but they were radically anti-drunkenness. Yeah. So um, if they caught you with alcohol, you were uh, kind of done for. Um, but, you know, the Friday night, you know, Sabbath uh, cup of wine, that was accepted. And yeah. I had a really good friend um, who was one of my groomsmen at my wedding, um, he would get a new bottle every week uh, from a different winery, and he would try to go to kind of the upper middle range um, that he could find at the local supermarket. Really? Yeah, you could get these really interesting wines from all over the country. I see. I've been wanting to dive into that. I yeah. just don't know enough. So now you're you're teaching me a little bit on kind of what is generally out there. Yeah. As far as the the rules are concerned and whatnot. But in terms of what you're drinking, if you're drinking a non-boiled kosher wine, it's not going to be um, processed any differently uh, from anything else you can find. The biggest difference might be the region. Typically, okay. they're grown in, uh, grapes grown in Israel. Okay. And is there any particular part in Israel that is more sought after? Is that up for debate? Oh, that's a loaded question. I know. Um, <laughs> I guess it depends yeah, on who you're asking. I'm only I'm only saying that's a loaded question because I have had a wine that was grown on a, um, and I don't know if this is podcast appropriate, but um, grown on a on a settlement by a kind of radical um, 
you know, right-wing settler. It was this guy who went out in a, basically an RV and settled this plot of land in the West Bank. Uh, and then um, his daughter was tragically uh, murdered. Um, and so now all of his wine is basically dedicated to her. But it's like crazy story. Pretty good wine. Uh, yeah. But, you know, that's that's wine from like a geopolitically contested region. Yeah. Um, I don't know so much about terroir, but, um, you know, kind of just the story behind it was, was very different. Yeah, it's yeah. intriguing. It's not necessarily like a happy ending kind of a story. No, but it's it's got like a lot of character, I guess. Yeah, no, it's definitely unique. Uh, but yeah, there's there's Galilee wines. There's wines from... Um, I'm blanking on the regions now, but basically uh, the, the whole country is... Um, ripe for winemaking and um, you get all these interesting geographic um, features of kind of very localized places in this country the size of New Jersey. I'm connected to this one guy on LinkedIn mm-hmm. um, and he's Jewish. He lives in Israel and he owns a winery. I want to say it's like Shalom Winery. <laughs> uh, which, which I read that on. Do, like, yeah. do you have any idea how little that narrows it down? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw the I think I think it was Shalom and I was like yeah that it's gonna be a really used term uh, yeah. there in Israel but um, <laughs> yeah it was across the street from uh, when I was in Israel Shalom uh, falafel and Shalom pizza <laughs> so everything just has Shalom in front of I'm it I'm not joking oh really They're yeah everywhere yeah <laughs> <laughs> I love it yeah <laughs> okay that doesn't narrow it down. I'll have to find the name and send it to you. Yeah, I'd be interested uh, to see. I've, I've been wanting to try his wine because he, he posts frequently about stuff and he mm-hmm. gives like ratings and his wines get pretty good ratings and so I've always been like, oh, I wonder where he sells it in the States, if he does sell it in the States. Yeah, I'd like to look into that. Yeah, maybe we'll have to, uh, we can track down some bottles, we'll have to come back <laughs> and do this again and do it kind of a blind tasting or something. Sure. Line them up. Um, maybe the next time we sit down, you'll have a a meadery or something. All right, Clem, thank you so much. Yeah, well, nice talking to you. And with that, I want to thank Clem one more time for coming on. I had such an amazing time talking with him and getting to know him, really, because that was the first time I had met Clem in person. So, with that being said, give us a five-star review and a like and subscribe. This is the Wine Heretics Podcast, and I'm your host, Jack Jack. Until next time. <laughs>